Well, we do continue our series this morning, uh, What Jesus uh, Looks For in a Church, uh, which of course is a study of uh, Christ's messages uh, to the seven churches found in Revelation uh, chapters 2 and 3. This morning, we come to the sixth of the seven churches, uh, the church in the city of Philadelphia, which I've called uh, the church where Jesus would choose to be a member. Uh, I say that because the church in Philadelphia, more than any other, endeared itself to Christ's heart. Uh, In this little church, we're going to see that Jesus found a very, very bold faith. Uh, They were prepared, available, ready to go through any door that God would open for them into service. In Christ's message to the church, uh, we will not find the slightest word of rebuke, no condemnation, no criticism, only praise for this church. So uh, please open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and we want to uh, read uh, Christ's message to this uh, wonderful uh, little church that truly is uh, worthy of our emulation today. So this is Christ's message to the Church of Philadelphia, Revelation chapter 3. I'll begin reading at verse 7, and we will read through verse 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this. Let me just pause right here. I find it very interesting uh, the way Jesus presents himself to this church. He's the Holy One. He's true. That word true has the idea of authenticity, uh, the idea of veracity. And of course, this concept of he's the one that opens, he's the one that shuts, talks about the sovereignty of God. And uh, so uh, uh, the fact that there's no uh, criticism of this church in light of that introduction, holy, authentic, the real deal, sovereign God, uh, says a lot about this church as well. And of course, uh, that picture of Christ would have truly encouraged them to continue on in the way in which they were going. But here's his commendation of this church. He says, I know your deeds, in verse 8. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan, who say they are Jews and are not, But lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Man, what a statement there. This is talking about their opposition, their enemies that were persecuting them. He says, I'm giving you a promise that there's coming a day they're going to bow down at your feet and they'll know that I have loved you. And then he goes on in verse 10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. 
He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it any more. And I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now let me very, very uh, upfront with you uh, at the very beginning. There's so much packed into these verses that it will be impossible to cover everything in one message. Uh, so uh, what I'm going to focus on is basically the commendation that he gives them. So again, follow along in your uh, uh, church, uh, your sermon notes as we look at his commendation, which is basically feebleness wedded with faithfulness. We're talking about their feebleness wedded with the faithfulness of Christ. This concept of Jesus' strength being perfected in their weakness, being put on display through their weakness. Uh, Jesus said, as you noted in verse 8, that this was a church of little power. Uh, they were apparently... Uh, very small in number. This was not uh, a large church. Uh, most of its members were probably poor uh, from the lower classes in society. Uh, as we read and noted, they were facing fierce opposition uh, from unsaved Jews who Christ called the synagogue of Satan. Uh, we saw this same opposition uh, to the church in Smyrna. These unsaved Jews spread slander against the church for the purpose of inciting public opinion against them. But despite being feeble, despite being under slanderous attacks, we discover they were a mighty force for God in their city of Philadelphia. They saw their difficulties not as obstacles to their faith, but stepping stones providing the opportunity to walk out their faith before the eyes of a watching world. They saw their little power, not something to whine about, but as an opportunity to demonstrate nothing is impossible with God, that you're a majority when He's on your side. Uh, you know, one of the reoccurring principles in the Bible is that God uses difficulty. He uses adversity as a backdrop to demonstrate the authenticity of our Christianity and to put that Christianity on display. Just one example, uh, Romans chapter 5, a very familiar passage, uh, verses 1 through 5, uh, speaking of believers, Therefore, having been justified by faith, declared not guilty by God, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we were justified through faith in Christ. We find peace with God as our relationship with Him is restored. And then he goes on, verse 2, Through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we exult or we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And then verse 3, remarkable verse. And not only this, but we also exult or rejoice in tribulations. Well, why would we rejoice in difficulty, in pain, perplexity, hardship? He tells us, because knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, the character of Christ, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint. 
because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So God uses adversity. He uses difficulty not only to form Christ in us to, as we're driven to lean on Him and to know an intimacy with Him, but He uses that adversity to put Christ on display through our lives. As people look at us going through difficulty, how can they know peace? How can they know uh, assurance and joy even in the midst of this? Uh, bottom line, real faith shines in difficulty. Where a counterfeit faith, what? Wines in adversity. Uh, so what endured Christ to this church was their simple but very, very deep devotion to Him. And the fact that their faith would seize every opportunity to advance the cause of Christ. So uh, look now with me at the five very specific commendations Christ gave to the church at Philadelphia realizing, and this is the most important, this is what Jesus is looking for in Edgewood Baptist Church as well, uh, so that he could commend us of these same five things, and also realize, and this is the most, I believe, important point in this message, so don't miss it. Christ is saying, listen now, Christ is saying these five commendations are also the the very reasons why he opened doors for the church of Philadelphia. So the point of application is this. God will open a door when a church fulfills the conditions that allow it to move through the door once open. So again, these five commendations are also the conditions that Jesus is looking for us to fulfill where he knows he can trust us with open doors of service and ministry and to advance the gospel of Christ. And look at the first commendation, courage. Courage to walk through doors of service which God opened. Revelation 3, that very first part of uh, verse 8, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. And the open door is referring to opportunities for service. Uh, we, we see this language throughout the Scripture. Let me just give you a couple examples. There are many others that I could share. We just don't have the time. Uh, but 1 Corinthians uh, 16, 9, for a wide door for effective service. Notice that thought of an open door to service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Uh, look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, praying that God may open up to us a door what? For the Word, to proclaim the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the members of the church at Philadelphia were constantly looking, constantly looking for every opportunity, every open door to serve others and advance the cause of Christ. Unlike the members of the church in Sardis that we looked at last Sunday, who saw church is something to come to, a service to attend, this church in Philadelphia saw the church as something to be on the move. They realized they were the body of Christ. God had placed them in the city of Philadelphia to walk as Jesus walked, to seek and save the lost, 
to minister as Jesus ministered. So this leads us to two points of application right here. And here's the first, and get it down in your notes. Those who enter the door of salvation or to go out the door of service. In other words, when God calls you to salvation, it's also a call to service. It's a call of ministry. That you are to give yourselves in the cause of Christ to benefit others, for the spiritual welfare of others. Look at this great, great quote from Mark Pierce. Unless our faith saves us out of selfishness into service, it will certainly never save us out of hell into heaven. That is a powerful, that is a true quote. Unless our faith saves us out of selfishness into service, it will certainly never save us out of hell into heaven. And this is right in line with what we read in James chapter 2, verse 14. What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Now, most of you are knowledgeable enough in the Scriptures. This is not saying that we're saved by works. But what is it saying? That true, authentic faith in Jesus produces something. It produces a changed life. It produces works. It produces acts of service. It produces fruit. And that's why Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, coupled with chapter 13, verse 13. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. And then Hebrews 13, 13. Let us go out to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. Notice, here's the simple point. There are two places appointed for every believer. First, within the veil to worship Christ. But then we're to go outside the camp to witness for Christ. If what we call worship does not result in giving us a passion for the loss, if it does not give us a drive where we are aggressively attempting to reach the loss of Christ, reach the loss of Christ, that is not true worship. In other words, the proof of true worship, that you've been in within the veil, that you're intimate with the Lord Jesus, that you're developing His heart, is that you're going to be driven to minister to others. You're going to be driven to reach the lost because that is His heart. You know, it's amazing to me, and it's tragic and it's sad, how we can argue, I'm I'm talking about just, you know, the the church in general, Uh, just not just in America, but, you know, this has been a, a, a problem throughout the ages. We can argue so much about styles of worship, but never become broken over the fact that we've missed the heart of worship, which is this right here. Jesus said in Matthew 20, verse 28, your attitude must be like my own, for I the Messiah, did not come to be served, but to serve. So those who enter the door of salvation are to go out the door of service. 
And then look at that next point. Every believer, every believer, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, every believer is uniquely shaped to serve God. Uniquely shaped to serve God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. We are God's, what's it say? Workmanship. In the Greek, poema. That's from where we get the word poem. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thought. If you're a believer, you're God's masterpiece. You're God's, you're God's poem. Uh, you're God's unique work. You're created in Christ Jesus for what purpose? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 17, Paul says that a believer is equipped for every good work. In Titus 2, 14, Paul says we're to be zealous for good deeds. Uh, and again, it's not that good works can produce salvation, but many good works are produced by salvation. Again, that true salvation produces a changed life, love for others, where it's not about us, it's about God and investing in the lives of others. Job 10.8 reads, Your hands shaped me. Your hands, God, shaped me. You made me. Now, in your notes, you'll notice I've taken the word shape to basically show how God has shaped you to serve Him. That letter S, spiritual gifts. The letter S, spiritual gifts. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. Each one, referring to believers within the body of Christ, each one, without exception, every single believer has received a gift. And then what does he say? Employ it in serving. Put it to use. Become a participant. You haven't been brought into the church to be a spectator, but to be a participant in the life of the church and in the mission of the body of, of Christ. Now, uh, what are the gifts? Uh, yeah, I, I, was, I was thinking going over this, maybe after coming out of this series, maybe I'll take a couple of weeks to do a, a, just a little mini-series uh, on the gifts. I, I haven't done that in a good little while. It might be a good thing to do, but... You know, if you just go to Romans 12, for example, there are listed seven gifts. Let me just mention those. Uh, there's the gift of prophecy. What is the gift of prophecy? Now, in the context of uh, the gifts, it's not about foretelling the future. It's the motivation. And, and, and this is very important with the gifts. Uh, the, the gifts are what provide you your primary motivation in ministry. This is your sort of your, your bent, your, your, your desire, your motivation. So if someone has the gift of prophecy, they'll find that they're motivated to proclaim, to speak God's word in order to edify, exhort, and console the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 14, 3. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. That's, that's the, the, the gift that God has given me. That's, that's what motivates me. That, that drives me. Uh, I'm one that has to speak God's word, proclaim it. And, and I speak it with the motivation, with the goal to bring growth, edification to the body of Christ, to bring encouragement, consolation to those who are hurting and suffering. 
Then there's the gift of service. And this is the motivation to meet the practical needs of others in order to demonstrate the love of Jesus in action. And there are so many of you in this body that have the, the gift of service. I think of uh, Linwood Spires, who, uh, one of our deacons that, that uh, oversees our benevolence ministry. Uh, Linwood and Dorr have been in this church for many, 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 many years. And if you know Linwood... This, this is his motivation. This is his drive. This, this is how he, he sees life through this filter. He, he, can't, he can't miss practical needs. And when he sees these practical needs, he's motivated to meet those needs, to demonstrate Christ's love in action. Then there's the gift of teaching. And this is the motivation to study and present God's Word in a very systematic and understandable way in order to ground the church in God's Word. Colossians 1.28 says, Teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. I think of my son Jonathan. It's very, very obvious Jonathan has the gift of teaching. His motivation is to share God's Word in a very systematic way, a very understandable way to ground people in God's truth that they might be presented mature before Christ. A fourth gift, exhortation. And that's the motivation what? To encourage believers to progress in their walk with God through the practical application of God's Word. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says what? Let us consider how to stimulate one another into love and good deeds, encouraging one another. I think of my good friend Ken Grubb sitting right down there. And there, there are many others of you out there. But Ken has this gift of encouragement. If you know Ken, I mean, and if you know any encourager, you love to be around these folks because they are encouraging. Uh, they, are, they are uplifting. And, and their motivation in life is to come along your side, especially when you're going through difficulty and assist you through that time, to encourage you in that time, not so much to criticize you or to condemn you, but to lift you up and, and to give you practical guidance and, and direction. And then there's the gift of giving. And, of course, that's the motivation to provide uh, the financial and material resources needed to accomplish uh, God's God's work. And there's a gift of it. And, and we've had many in this church over the years uh, that have the gift of giving. I won't mention any names because they don't like to have their names mentioned. And, and they don't like to have their names mentioned because of their humility. Uh, they don't want to be uh, uh, put in the spotlight. They, they don't want to be noticed. They just want to quietly behind the scenes give to invest in the cause of Christ. Uh, that, uh, that God's work may be done. And then there's the gift of administration, and that's the motivation uh, to organize and lead people in the church to accomplish God-given goals. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 40 says, Let all things be done, what? Properly and in an orderly manner. Thank God for James Wilson, our church administrator. Uh, yes, that is his title, but it's not just a title. If y'all know James, and most of you do, he has the gift of administration. This is his motivation. This is how he looks at things through this filter. How to bring order. How to bring organization so that things work smoothly and goals and objectives can be met. And then there's the gift of mercy. A beautiful, beautiful gift. And this is the motivation to comfort and strengthen those who are emotionally or spiritually hurting. Uh, Romans 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And I can never talk about the gift of mercy without thinking of our former senior pastor, David Howe. Uh, I, 
there is the gift of mercy. Yes, he was a great preacher. Yes, he was a great teacher. And there are many, many other aspects of his. But everything was motivated by this mercy to bring comfort uh, to hurting people. And it's always been interesting to watch over Brother David's uh, years of ministry, uh, the hurting people that he's collected around him. They, they just sort of seem to swarm to him because they, they know his heart is, is so, so very, very uh, tender. And again, there are so many of you uh, in this church that have that remarkable gift. My wife has this, has this gift, and, uh, and uh, that helps balance me off. Prophets can be a little rough at times, uh, and, uh, and so I need my wife to bring a little more gentleness and tenderness to my life. And hopefully over the years, I've ta- learned a little bit of that from her. And hopefully she's learned maybe a, a little more uh, willingness to confront and challenge when, that, when that's needed with her gift of, of, of mercy. So the S is spiritual gift. So, so it's important for you to discern what are the gifts that God has given you and to employ those gifts uh, for the sake of the uh, body. And then the, the letter H in that word shape, heart, heart. In other words, I'm talking about passion. In other words, sometimes we make this so difficult. Ask, what do I enjoy doing? And then do it for the glory of God. The letter A, abilities. Ask, what am I good at doing? And then use your ability to serve God. Now, I'm not talking about the realm of spiritual gifts here. I'm talking about, how about these orchestra people up here? And our instruments, they have this remarkable gift of music. Now, that's not necessarily what the Bible would define as a spiritual gift in the context of what I just shared from Romans 12. But these are unique abilities that God has given them. You may have unique abilities in technical areas with uh, computers or whatever it might be. Well, what are you good at doing? What unique abilities do you have? And how can that be utilized for the good, the benefit, and the welfare of the church family. And then personality, the letter P, the letter P, personality. In other words, don't mimic someone else's ministry. Be the person God made you. Amen. You know, God, bottom line, He uses different kinds of people and through different kinds of methods. Uh, the people God uses are as different as Rahab and Esther. One a former prostitute. The other a queen. God uses people as different as Amos and Ezra. One just a simple farmer. Sort of your hell, fire, and brimstone preacher. And the other a brilliant, brilliant intellectual and scholar. He uses introverts like Moses. Extroverts like Peter. He even uses moody people like Jonah. And he uses stubborn people like Paul, bullheaded people. He uses the rich and the poor, the young and the old. So bottom line, stop wanting to be like someone else. Accept who you are and simply say, God, I'm making myself, my personality, as unique as it is, available to you. But also stop criticizing others for not being like you. Be grateful for the differences in the church. Uh, the, this is God's way for the church to be all things, to reach all people, uh, that they might come to know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then the letter E, what's the letter E represent? Experiences. Experiences in life. 
In other words, every one of us have been shaped by the experiences that we've experienced in life. And how many times have I said from this pulpit, God desires to transform every hurt you've ever experienced into an open door of ministry to others. Let me say that again. God desires to trans every hurt that you ever experience into an open door. In other words, if you're in pain right now, or if you've experienced any pain, hurt, adversity in the past, know God was calling you to minister, giving you an open door, that as you would know His grace, you'd be able to share that grace with others. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, what a magnificent uh, uh, couple of verses uh, right there. Let me, let me read them for you, verses 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. Why? Why? So that, there's purpose, there's reason in the hurt, the pain, the affliction. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. For just, it goes on and says, for just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also the comfort of Christ is in abundance uh, ours as well. Uh, so bottom line, you are one of a kind. And God wants to use your uniqueness to serve Him. And then together, we form a mighty army to march for God. So the first quality that endeared Christ's heart to the church in Philadelphia was their courage to walk through the doors which God opened. And Christ's second commendation to the church was their faith in God's power. Their faith in God's power. Look at that uh, second phrase there in verse 8. Because you have little power. Notice, I've given you an open door because you have little power. In other words, this church realized an important truth. Their weakness, their inadequacy did not disqualify them from God's service. It's the very thing that qualified them. Remember, our God chooses, we're told this, the weak things of the world to confound what? The strong. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Jesus said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for power is perfected where? In weakness. And this was in con the context of his thorn in the flesh that he was struggling with. He was begging God to, to, to heal him of it. And God said, No, I'm going to use the thorn to drive you to me, and I'm going to perfect my strength in the midst of your weakness so that you can put me on display before others. Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is not in your notes, verses 3 and 4. This is from the Phillips uh, translation. Listen to this moment of transparency with Paul. He says, in myself, I was feeling far from strong. I was nervous and rather shaky. He's talking about when he initially went to the city of Corinth to preach the gospel. He says, I was nervous. I was rather shaky. What I said in priests had none of the attractiveness of the clever mind, but it was a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. In other words, while Paul was feeling weak, inadequate, while he was feeling shakiness and being nervous and being fearful and anxious, in the midst of all that, God's power worked through him. And the church was birthed. Individuals came to know the Lord Jesus 
uh, came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember the great hall of uh, fame of faith in Hebrews chapter 11? There's a precious little phrase in verse 34, which refers to all those that are listed there. It says, from weakness were made strong. Every one of those listed in that hall of fame of faith, from weakness. These weren't great giants of the faith. No, these were men that were just like you and me, weak, frail, had their vulnerabilities, had their failures, had their deficiencies, struggled with sin. But in the midst of their weakness, they were made strong. Look at the next statement of application in your notes. We are continually, continually confronted with opportunities brilliantly disguised by God as impossibilities so that God gets the glory. And that's the reality in the Christian life. That we are going to be continually confronted with opportunities, but opportunities disguised by God to be on impossibilities so that He receives the glory. So when all, everything is said and done, there'll be no other explanation than what? God did it. Uh, when we face great problems or challenges, God says, hey, don't look at them as impossibilities, but as opportunities. Don't look at the size of the problem. Look at the size of your God. Don't complain about your inability. Get excited about the master's ability. Don't worry about you what you don't possess. Simply surrender to God what you do possess and trust Him to make up the difference. Don't trust human ingenuity. Trust the power of prayer. And this leads us right to the third commendation that He gives this little church. Obedience to God's Word. In Revelation 3, the third phrase in verse 8, he says, and you've kept my word. See, one of the keys in the Christian life is when you realize that you cannot let feelings of fear or weakness dictate your walk with God. Because obedience is the trigger that releases God's power to do the impossible. What is obedience? The definition is there in your notes. Obedience is doing exactly what I'm told to do. And where are we told what to do? Right here. So it, it be, obedience is doing exactly what I'm told to do. When I'm told to do it. With the right heart attitude. Which releases the power of God. Therefore God's commandments are God's what? Enablements. As I step out in faith to obey God. Although this seems impossible. Although I'm overcome with weakness and fear and inadequacy, the moment I take that step, God releases His power in and through my weakness to accomplish His purposes in my life. Look at Christ's fourth commendation, their love for Christ. Their love for Christ. That last phrase in verse 8 says, And you have not denied my name. You've not denied my name. Simply put, they remain loyal to Jesus no matter what it costs them. And you know, that's sort of a reoccurring theme we've seen through this study. One of the things that Christ is looking for. Um, look at the next statement in your notes. This is what He's looking for. Remaining faithful to Jesus. Remaining faithful in suffering proves the depth of my love for Him. I mean, it's just this simple. You're only going to suffer for that which you value. And the greater you value something, the more you're going to be willing to suffer for it. The greater you value something, there will be no limit 
to any sacrifice that you make. In other words, you won't even view it as a sacrifice. You'll view it as a wonderful opportunity to demonstrate your love to that individual or to the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever it might be. So they had this deep love for Christ. They did not deny His name. In the midst of fierce opposition and difficulty and pain and perplexity, they remained faithful to Jesus. And in that faithfulness in suffering, they proved the depth of their love for Jesus. They proved just how much they valued their relationship with Jesus Christ. And then the fifth and final commendation that Christ gives to this church was their hope in Christ's return. Their hope in Christ's return. Look at the very first part of Revelation 3, verse 10. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance. The NIV reads, you have kept my command to endure patiently. Now the reason I say hope in Christ's return is that throughout the New Testament, perseverance is linked to the return of Christ. The, the truth of our Lord's imminent return is our beacon of hope. We know what the final outcome is going to be. He wins. And those that are following Him will be victors as well, overcomers. And when He comes, we will finally have our reward. You know, that's another thing we've seen throughout this study. You know, in the American church scene, we've sort of developed a Christianity where we're expecting all of our rewards now in this life. And when you read the Bible, there's really very little that's, uh, that they give you an expectation for in this life. I mean, a lot of it is just taking up your cross, denying yourself, following Him in the midst of pain, difficulty. Your reward is in the next life. And that's why we have that opportunity to demonstrate our faith and love in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the next statement in your notes, that last statement in your notes. The faithful pilgrim on earth, he promises, will become a firm pillar in heaven's temple. The faithful pilgrim on earth will become a firm pillar in heaven's temple. Look at Revelation 3 verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. He also says, I'll put the name of God on them, which refers to ownership. He also says, I'm going to put the name of the city of God on them, talking about an eternal residence that we'll have. And he says, I'm also going to give them my new name that will be given to me, which is a reference to our ongoing eternal intimacy and romance with Jesus as we rule with Him as His Queen. So those are the five commendations that He gives to this marvelous church, which are also the five conditions that Jesus is looking for so that He can open doors of service for a church, open doors to advance the gospel, courage, to walk through the doors of service, faith in God's power, obedience to God's word, love for Christ, hope in Christ's return. Bow with me in prayer. As we go to the Lord in prayer, let me challenge you right now, every one of us, just in a, a renewing fashion, in a fresh fashion, uh, would you be willing to surrender your life to God? Would you be willing to make yourself available to God? 
If in that surrender and in making yourself available, you need to confess how you've gotten too wrapped up in yourself, in your own needs, and you've neglected service to Him and and to others, then do so. But you know, I, I prayed earlier that the cross was not only the altar where Christ laid down His life to pay for the penalty of our sins, but we need to understand when He died on that cross and His blood was spilt on that cross, He sanctified it. He transformed it. He transformed that cross from an instrument of execution to become an instrument of justification, sanctification, and glorification for all who touch it through faith in Jesus Christ. And so He transformed that cross into an altar where we are to come to lay down our lives as living sacrifices where we discover the unique gifts that He has given us where we do surrender our unique personalities and temperaments, even in the midst of our weaknesses and inadequacies and flaws, trusting that where our sin does abound, His grace will much more abound. So I'm just challenging each one of us right now. Say, God, I come to the cross. I lay down my life and surrender to You as Your follower. I make myself available to You. Lord, use me. Use me. Work into my heart the graces that you worked in the church in Philadelphia. Give me courage to walk through doors of opportunity. To look for those doors. To aggressively seize the opportunities. Uh, Let me put my faith in your power. In the midst of my weakness. Give me the grace to keep your word. To love Christ regardless the cost and to always place my hope my focus on your return and live in light of that return that I might know your reward so let me just give you an opportunity again just to make that surrender to make yourself available to be used by God Father, you've heard our prayers, you've you've seen our hearts, as we have renewed our surrender to you, as we've made ourselves available to you. Lord, meet us in our weakness, in our inadequacy and failure. Perfect your strength. Use us for your honor and your glory. I thank you for every single person in this church family. I thank you for every unique personality temperament, all the unique backgrounds that are here, all the various life experiences that have uh, been walked through by those in this church family. And Lord, uh, thank you, like the church in Philadelphia, although we may be of little power, uh, your strength is perfected in, in that. 
And so, Lord, uh, use this for your honor and glory. And uh, I pray you would do such a deep work of grace in our hearts and lives that you would be able to look at us as you looked at the church in Philadelphia and that you would uh, use us uh, for your honor and for your glory. For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.